0: Kristen, here we are, Christmas 2015, and as usual, a wheelbarrow full of movies.
1: Some might say it's more movies than you can carry in Santa's sack.
0: <laughs> so
1: would... many movies in his magic sleigh. Nobody yep. would
0: say that, but you, yes, Kristen. I love
1: Santa. He's so nice.
0: <laughs> he today, this year, he's bringing you Concussion with Will Smith.
1: He's so into concussions.
0: <laughs> He's bringing you joy with Jennifer Lawrence. Oh, you
1: know what? I actually thought Joy was a movie about Christmas when I first heard the name.
0: Oh, because its right, I it's see. It's coming
1: out on Christmas right. it's called Joy.
0: Like Noel. Right, no. <laughs> uh, but I understand what you're saying. <laughs> oh, by on... the way, I
1: also thought Revenant was a Christmas movie. You did? Why would you think that? Because it means you're coming back from the dead, so <laughs> I thought it was like a Jesus thing.
0: <laughs> the Revenant. <laughs> You're such an optimist.
1: I am. I love Boy. Christmas. You know I love Christmas, Reefer. How long have we been friends? You know I love Christmas. I know
0: you do. I know you do. We'll talk about The Revenant. We'll talk about Daddy's Home with Will Ferrell. We'll talk about all the Christmas movies except for one one that we were very excited, very excited to talk about, but we cannot. And we'll tell you why in just a little bit. But first, let's introduce ourselves. I'm Rafer Guzman, film critic for Newsday.
1: And I'm Kristen Meinzer, culture producer for The Takeaway, and this is Movie Date. All right, Rafer, we got a lot of stuff to cover today. Let's first start with something exciting, something that feels good because it's Christmas time, head trauma. Head trauma. Yes, that's right. And there's a lot of head trauma in a certain movie this week called Concussion, starring Will Smith. Will Smith is playing a real pathologist who is investigating what is causing certain NFL retired players to act erratically and to die in horrific ways. Here's a clip. Men, your men, continue to die. Their families left in ruins. truth. Tell the truth.
0: So, Kristen, neither you nor I are big football fans.
1: No, no, not and, even close. Right. You can't and, even use the word fans at all.
0: No, you can't. <laughs> and and interestingly, neither is uh, Dr. Bennett Omalu, who is the star of this film, played by Will Smith, a guy who, as, the, as you said, is the forensic pathologist in Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh. And yet knows nothing about football. And, which is uh, crazy. Which is very crazy. That place is
1: called Steelers Nation, if I'm not mistaken.
0: Even I might know something about football <laughs> if you put me in Pittsburgh. Um, I almost worked in Pittsburgh, actually, years and years ago. It's
1: supposed to be a very hip
0: city. It was totally cool, actually. I was really disappointed I didn't get the job at the time. Anyway, um, I liked this movie. I thought it was a very good, straightforward biopic uh, about one guy taking on uh, the big guys. I like the idea. It seemed very real to me that uh, the NFL would have a vested interest in not having this information come out, this idea that its employees essentially are – very prone to uh, brain trauma, uh, dr- you know, drug problems, uh, insanity, essentially, and death. Um, yeah,
1: self-harm, harm to their families. Right. That's a problem. are horrible things. There's one person in particular in this movie who is yanking out his own teeth and superglowing them back into his head.
0: Yes. There's, uh, there's also there's a character in this film, real character Mike Webster, played um, briefly but I thought very heartbreakingly by David Morse, a great character actor who's been around for years. Oh, I love um, him. Small small role, but very effective. Um, I liked that. Um, and I thought I was... I was very impressed by the fact that this film was willing to go after football. Um, you know, usually in a movie like this, it's okay. You go after the tobacco company. You go after the nuclear plant. You go after all these big guys that we already know are villains, that we already have these, you know, kind of uh, suspicious feelings about. Everyone loves football, but this film goes right after it. What did you think?
1: Yeah, and they even come right out and say in the film, the NFL... Uh, various executives, doctors, and so on, who are on the NFL side of things. Do you know what will happen if you go after us? Yeah. Do you know what will happen? And you and I both love this quote. We were talking about this earlier, Rafer. If even 10% of moms no longer let their boys play the game, Yes, our sport is over. Yeah,
0: that's it. Done.
1: And there are actually lower enrollments in a lot of sports now.
0: Yeah, Pop Warner, uh, the, the 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 enrollment in Pop Warner, which is basically kids' football, um, dipped a few years ago by about ten percent. Um, whether that's still true now, I don't know. But um, you know, this film will certainly not help. Um, you know, <laughs> will not help football's PR problem. But I think it's a good film, and I was impressed by the way that it was able to that it was willing to go after the NFL. So
1: I, thought it was a good date. But I will say this. As much as I love Gugu Mbatha-Raw, yes. um, who plays his girlfriend and then wife in this movie, yes, I felt that that was a little bit—every time she'd come on screen as beautiful and as much as I love her, I felt that that detracted from the story. I felt that sometimes there were points where the story should have been streamlined more.
0: Yeah, I think she's there to sort of humanize him, and I think she's there to to also bolster this idea that he is— even though he's anti-football, he's pro America. He's an immigrant who believes in the American dream. He's not an outsider trying to take down this institution. He's an he's an outsider who loves this country and is pursuing science and I think she's there to sort of make that case.
1: Yeah, I knew why she was there, but I felt that it took away from you still didn't like the it. <laughs> story. I I just wanted it to be more streamlined. The story could have been tighter. And it was good enough just to do the David and Goliath story. I didn't need all the other stuff with it. But overall, I thought Will Smith was great in it. So I'm going to say it's a pretty good date.
0: Okay, next up, another biopic. Um, Or is it? Oh, her name uh, is Joy. Her name is Joy. And this movie is called Joy. And when this film was first coming out, we all thought it was going to be – fairly straight-ahead biopic of Joy Mangano, the Long Island housewife who invented the Miracle Mop, became a a star of uh, QVC and Home Shopping Network, and in some ways you might say one of the first kind of reality TV people. She was playing herself on uh, on these networks, selling her product that she had invented in her own home to make you, the housewife, have an easier life. Here's Jennifer Lawrence as Joy.
1: You said to me that David Selznick, the son of immigrants, married Jennifer Jones, an all-American girl from Oklahoma, because in America, all races and all classes can meet and make whatever opportunities they can, and that is what you feel when you reach into people's homes with what you sell. You said that. All right, so that is Jennifer Lawrence as Joy, talking to an executive at QVC, played by Bradley Cooper, trying to convince him trying to tell him, you said I could have the American dream. You said that's what we're about, and she really wants to have it, and he might be able to help her with that. So, Rafer, you're a Long Island person. This is your wheelhouse. And did you know about Joy before all of this?
0: Yes. I mean, she's a huge deal on Long Island. So I, we at Newsday and, and people on Long Island, I think, were very interested in this film. Um, she's a real local hero um, and and a national hero. Although I think when the film was coming out, If you weren't from Long Island, you would have no idea what the movie was about. absolutely The trailers were just baffling. The trailers
1: were so confusing. I'm like, what is this movie about? Is it about a girl in college? Is it about somebody who has got a crazy family? I don't understand what her business is. Who is she fighting? Why is she on TV suddenly? right. None of it made any sense to me, and I think that the trailer – presumed we knew who she was? I, I I don't know what they were thinking. It's a horrible trailer. Well, I
0: think what happened, my guess is what happened is at some point, David O. Russell, the director, decided that he didn't want to make a straight biopic. Um, he wanted to make something that was a little bit more uh, fantastical, a little bit uh, looser with the facts that I think would allow him to juice up the story, beef up the characters, make it a little more of a a little more of a movie, I, I guess I would say. And so he does that, and you will never hear the name Mangano in this film. Whenever someone says, introduce yourself, she'll say, I'm Joy. But she never <laughs> gives her last name. Um, and it's never, I think, specifically said that she lives on Long Island. I'm not even sure they call it the Miracle Mop, although it's you know it's clearly the Miracle Mop. Anyway, that aside, um, I went into this film with big question marks over my head, wondering what I was about to see, and I think what I came away with was a very real and sincerely told American story. Uh, I think that's very important. She's a woman who pulls herself up by her bootstraps. She, As you say, she comes from this nutty family. Uh, her dad, Robert De Niro, her ex-husband, played by Edgar Ramirez, they all live with her.
1: Oh, God. Her mom is a hot mess who will not leave her bed and <laughs> yes. just watches soap operas. Just watches soap operas. Everything's horrible. These <laughs> people are a hot mess. They're all leeching out off of her. Right. Her sister is just
0: Her sister's horrible. Well, uh, Isabella Rossellini horrible. plays uh, Robert De Niro's new new girlfriend who her first is willing investor, to yeah. her first investor but who's also extremely uh, judgmental and ruthless and not always pleasant. Um, so she's fighting fighting fighting. Joy is fighting all the time in this movie to get ahead and and realize her dream which is this on the one hand kind of goofy dream. It's a mop. It's a damn mop. And yet she knows that this is her thing and she's going to put it out there and it works and it's real. And even though I think the film itself is also a bit of a mess and a little confusing and it sure is. kind of all over the map, <laughs> I thought it worked and I thought it was – a again, it's kind of an exercise in sincerity. It asks you to take this person, this housewife, this woman, this this kind of role that I think is usually denigrated or sidelined in the movies. If not in our lives.
1: But she's not actually a housewife. And she's the woman who has to work so many jobs to hold it together. Well, because yes, her family exactly. won't do anything. We're right. all losers. Exactly. Nobody's doing anything except her. She's working at the airport. She's taking care of her kids. She's doing the plumbing she's, in her own right. ramshackle she's house. She's doing everything.
0: There's a great scene in this movie where she, she, she says this line that I think many women in America will recognize because I've heard it out of my own wife. She lies down on, on, a, on a couch or a bed for a moment and said... I'm just going to close my eyes for a little bit. And she just sinks into a dead sleep. And I thought, oh, my God, I have seen my wife do that. I know that. I, I recognize that. And I feel like people who go see this movie, perhaps especially women, will recognize that as well. And in that sense, I thought Joy was really good and worth seeing and fun. And Jennifer Lawrence is pretty great in the role.
1: She is so likable. I think she's a little too young for this role. The real joy was in her mid thirties when she launched the miracle. Mob. Yeah, maybe. And sometimes you're looking at Jennifer Lawrence and thinking, "You're not old enough to have kids this age, <laughs> right. unless you were 14 when you started having your kids. You just like are way too young to be playing this role. And yet she's so likable. She's yep. so enjoyable. You really can't help but root for her. I wanted everything to go her way. Yeah, I really did. It's a mess overall, but especially in the beginning, it's a mess. But I still couldn't help but just love Joy. I totally felt great when I left the theater.
0: Yeah, me too. I liked I liked Joy. Good date.
1: Very good date.
0: Let's do a quick 180 from uh, a movie with a woman at its center to... An extremely macho movie with almost no women at all, I don't think. Uh, The Revenant, starring Leonardo DiCaprio as the real-life frontiersman Hugh Glass. Um, Hugh Glass is famous, uh, legendary, you might say, for having survived a bear attack, a grizzly attack, in the early uh, 1800s, when he was a fur trapper, and he uh, claws his way back across 200 miles of uh, terrain to civilization in the winter. In the winter, horrible, right. horrible
1: fur trading winter. <laughs> right. When those animals have all that fur, you know it's cold out. Yeah, you got nothing. Yeah.
0: Um, and so this is the story of Hugh Glass. It's directed by uh, Alejandro Inarritu. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. The guy behind Birdman. And uh, here's DiCaprio. <laughs> It's my boy, and he took him from me. You understand? He's afraid. He knows how far I came to find him. I'm
1: grunting. I can bear it. You know why he he's grunting so much? Because his throat got ripped out by a bear. Yeah, because his throat (laughs) got ripped
0: out. Great scene of DiCaprio leaning uh, over a river trying to drink water, but the water just runs out of the hole in his throat. (laughs)
1: Look, I'm going to try to eat organ meat. Oh, can't keep it down.
0: (laughs) Can't keep it down. Oops. Now I can because I'm so starving that I will eat that. Um, I was uh, not sure what this movie was going to be about. Again... The trailer did not look that promising to me. It looked very dark and plotless. I couldn't
1: even tell what time period it was from in the trailers.
0: Yes, it's, it's, the trailers are, again, another trailer that I think does not necessarily sell the film... Um, so I wasn't expecting that much from it. I like Inoritu. I loved Birdman. I think his past movies uh, I have disliked in general. Oh, uh, yeah.
1: You hated Amoros Peros and Beautiful. Was oh, it Beautiful? beautiful. You it? Oh, oh my
0: bad. God. Give me a break. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so I'm, I'm often not a big fan of his. And I'm uh, not a huge DiCaprio fan. I think he can be good. I think he's often very actorly and seems very studied to me and doesn't seem real to me. Um, This movie wound up on my top 10 list. I'll just say now I thought it was spectacular. Um, The camera work, the single-take action scenes in this film – are just jaw dropping. It there seems
1: there are several minutes long, <laughs> with a in... cast of hundreds in some of these. People scenes.
0: dying, being thrown off of horses, being shot, uh, arrows going directly through their bodies. Yeah, it...
1: and then you'll see somebody come by in a horse, a shooting close up on an ankle, go up to the hill. See... Oh my it, god! It's unbelievable!
0: It is just incredible. I absolutely. Loved this film. I have some reservations. It's a little long, as you said, Kristen. There are a lot of shots of people eating raw meat. <laughs>
1: it's a so, little bit repetitive. A little yes.
0: bit repetitive. I do. I. I will grant you that. But overall, I thought this was one of the most physical and visceral films I've ever seen. I also want to say the score by uh, Alva Noto, who I'm not familiar with, but and also Ryuichi Sakamoto, who I've been a great fan of for years and years since his Yellow Magic Orchestra days back in the 80s. Um, hallucinatory, weird, weird, fascinating score. I just love this movie from top to bottom. Kristen, mm-hmm. you?
1: Well, you already said some things that speak to my complaints with this movie. Okay. O- overly long, repetitive, and one other thing I just I took issue with the depiction of Native Americans in this film you
0: did they're yeah, sort of mostly very problematic. they're
1: problematic they 're either completely psychotic monsters or they are the noble native who comes and saves your life, then disappears into the snow and I, and I had a problem with that. I really thought that that took away the humanness of the Native Americans, and I thought they deserved to be human too. The closest thing we even see to a Native American human and the closest we see to a female. Is a girl who gets kidnapped and raped.
0: But yes, the uh, Indian princess uh, that the tribe that the tribesmen are all looking for. I, I did think that and was And that
1: was very problematic.
0: I thought it was sort of an extraneous plot line, and also I, I will agree with you; it was a little bit of a macho fantasy. You know, yes. I'm cr- I've been attacked by a bear and I have to get back to civilization. Oh, and I'll also rescue the princess. Seemed a little bit like okay, that's a bit much. Um, you know, we know the guy's manly, but um, I don't know. I didn't I didn't feel that the that the that the portrayal of the Native Americans was entirely reductive. I do know what you're saying about the kind of uh, the noble savior that sort of drops in and helps the white man. Mm-hmm. That I agree with. Uh, did you like the film overall, though? Would you would you say it was
1: a good date? I would say overall it was a pretty good date. Technically, it was unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, those single take shots that you've been talking about. Also, I just cannot believe what they survived because this film is so harrowing. And in real life, shooting this film was Eight plus months of people just falling off yeah. the movie, like all sort. Like I think ten percent of the cast and crew either, you know, pulled out or got fired during the course of the making extraordinarily of this film.
0: difficult shoot. Yes, yeah,
1: and they actually are in those freezing waters. They are actually dealing with uh, some of these circumstances, which you know, the director decided we are not going to use any lights. You're going to have to do this all in real daylight. You're going to actually right. have to be in that avalanche, which we're going to create right. for you. That's <laughs> not special effects. We're going right. to have you be. In this situation, you're actually going to eat that organ meat, Leonardo DiCaprio.
0: Yes, yes. Repeatedly.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So it's an impressive feat. And I do have to point out, there's not a lot of dialogue. So if you don't like movies that are mostly silent, that might be a problem for some audience members. It really is a man walking, breathing heavily, groaning a lot. Lots of groaning. Lots of groaning. So if you're one of the audience members out there who really wants actual dialogue in a movie, this might not be your movie. Overall, technically, it it was... impressive, and I'd say it's a pretty good date, but it's not on my top ten video wafer. Alright, well stay with us, because when we come back, we have lots more movies to review for this Christmas Eve, plus Trivia.
0: I'm Rafer Guzman. And I'm Kristen Meinzer. And this is Movie Date.
1: And Rafer, we have so many more movies to get to because Christmas time is movie time in America. So let's move on to our next film. Well, let's talk
0: about Daddy's Home, starring Will Ferrell and Mark Wahlberg.
1: And I'm so sad. I missed this one. I know. You know. Kristen. I've been looking forward to this film for months. For you months. may, have,
0: you may be one of the few people who is actually looking forward to this film. It
1: looks adorable. <laughs> What's not to love? You have a sweater vest stepdad who's responsible and he loves his kids. And, That's Will Ferrell, and he's married to that girl who used to play Lindsay on Freaks and Geeks, Linda Cardellini. And then you have Marky Mark as the dad coming in and maybe stealing the thunder from the stepdad with his sweater vest. Uh-oh, he's got a motorcycle. Oh, he looks like he could be naughty and fun. I love the premise. What's not to love about this? Or do I have the premise wrong, Rafer?
0: You've got it. You've got it exactly. Here, here's a clip. I don't know if that's a good idea, Brad. Donkey! vibrating up into my shoulders. Hey, it's okay, Brad. Look, she's a lot of bike, man. No, I'm good. Why don't you go back in and take that shower so you can get a shirt on? All right, you got it. Hey, you look good on that, man. Remember, one down, four up. Dusty, everyone knows So I'll just say, Kristen, I was not necessarily looking forward to this film. I know film. you weren't.
1: You would tease me for it, but I was excited. I mean, excited. you
0: know, it just it didn't look like any great shakes to me, frankly. Uh, the director, Sean Anders, is uh, done a lot of stuff that I'm not a big fan of, like, let's say, We're the Millers, Horrible Bosses 2, <laughs> Hot Tub Time Machine 2. So, you know, not what I would call a great track record. Um, however, I was really surprised at how much... I liked this movie. And I think uh, a lot of it goes to Will Ferrell, who's playing a, a classic Will Ferrell character. A, a,
1: Well-intentioned, goofy. Exactly.
0: Perfect. Mark Wahlberg, also great as this kind of swaggering ex-military rock star type with the motorcycle. He can fix anything. He can destroy anything. He can beat anyone. <laughs> uh, you know, everybody loves him. You know, Will Ferrell's boss, played by uh, Thomas Hayden Church, who's great in this film. He loves Mark Wahlberg. Um, and it's filled with all these great little funny details um, things like the fact that Will Ferrell works at uh, the Panda 103.6, America's number three smooth jazz station. Um, that's, that's great. Um, all the supporting characters are great. Uh, Bobby Cannavale plays a fertility doctor who's got a sort of uh, unpleasant bedside manner, you might say. Um, there's all these great jokes, great characters. It all wraps up very neatly. And it's one of these movies that has a really good, consistent script where the characters make sense. They set up small jokes that pay off in a really big way at the end. I think the uh, there's a there's a dance uh, scene at the end that's a p- pivotal dance scene where um, one of the kids one of the kids is going to be going to the father the father daughter dance. Where's her dad? Where is her dad? Oh, Which dad will no. show up? And boy, is it a good scene! And uh, it all just works like a charm. Um, I thought it was really good, really enjoyable. It is a little on the off-color side. There's a lot of suggestive and kind of uh, crude sexual humor in it, not explicit, not gross, that made me feel like, you know, I wish they had actually taken that out and given a little more time to the wife and the two kids. And I feel like if they had done that, you could have had an actual, like, new family classic. You could have had something within spitting distance of a Mr. Mom or a Mrs. Doubtfire. I mean, it really could have been that kind of movie. I think what they're going for are the dads. I think this is supposed to be a dad date during Christmas time. You could take your fourteen year old to it and and have a good laugh. I wish they'd toned it down a little bit, but otherwise, I thought this was a really good date, and I had a great time at it.
1: oh, I'm so glad this is the movie that I plan on bringing Dean and the kids to oh oh, they'll, oh, they'll this love weekend. it so I'm super excited that you give it your endorsement rafer, oh, they'll love it. All right, let's move on to something that's a little less family-friendly. Oh, yeah. It's Hateful. And there's eight of them. (laughs) The Hateful Eight. This is that Quentin Tarantino film that
0: about His his eighth film.
1: (laughs) Yes, and about nine months ago, maybe ten months ago, you listed it as one of the films you were most looking forward to in the new year. Indeed I did. And now... You're probably punching yourself for thinking that because this movie has been the source of so much back and forth. And when the Sony emails were leaked and everybody knows this film has been a debacle ever since you said you wanted to see it. Well, it's
0: not my fault. (laughs) The script was leaked. Uh, Tarantino nearly nearly scrapped it, um, but he decided to go for it anyway. Um, Yeah. And so here we are with The Hateful Eight, uh, his eighth film. Kristen, do you want to tell us a little bit about what this Western film is about?
1: Ah, well, it takes place during a nasty winter in the West back in the 1800s. We have a bounty hunter played by Samuel L. Jackson, who ends up hitching a ride with another bounty hunter, a hangman, played by Kurt Russell, who has his latest uh, captured criminal with him in a wagon. They all ride off together in the snow they have to go to Minnie's Haberdashery, which is the next safe haven in this terrible weather. And there they come across a bunch of other unsavory folks. Here's a clip. My is never hang because I never bring in alive. Never? Never, ever. We talked about this in Chattanooga. Bringing desperate men in alive is a good way to get yourself dead. You can't catch me sleeping if I don't close my eyes. I don't want to work that hard. No
0: one said the job was supposed to be easy. No one said it's supposed to be that hard, neither.
1: Now, it's notable there's some old-fashioned aspects to this movie. One of them, Rafer, the way it was filmed.
0: That's right. It's it's filmed in Ultra Panavision 70mm, which is a a, a film. Uh, I, I'm actually not sure if that's a film stock or a film process, but it's it hasn't been used since, like, the late '60s. I mean, it's 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 been dormant for decades. But this is Quentin Tarantino's shtick, right? He loves mm-hmm. this kind of stuff, and uh, it is three hours long. There's an intermission. Yes. There's an
1: <laughs> opening overture. There's an
0: opening overture. There are chapter headings. Yes. Um, and you know what you're in for because uh, the score is by Ennio Morricone. So, which is fantastic. Yeah, and the score is very good. So uh, if you don't know him, he's the one who did all the spaghetti western oh, so uh, scores good. with Clint Eastwood. Um, and so you can tell that, you know, um, Quentin Tarantino's got these great ideas. I mean, you know, the cast, as you say, is Samuel L. Jackson, one of his favorites, Kurt Russell, Jennifer Jason Lee, who plays the outlaw, um, uh, Michael Madsen, another uh, Quentin Tarantino favorite. Fantastic cast, just fantastic. Bruce Dern, it, it, it goes on. Um, I was really looking forward to this because I like Quentin Tarantino's whole project of bringing back the old-fashioned movie event. You know, you go in, you sit down, and you get ready to have your socks blown off by what's on screen. I love that. I loved Grindhouse for that. Um, I love the beginning of this movie. I think the actors just grab you. I love the stagecoach scene. I love how he introduces each character. And I love the whole setup when they get to Minnie's haberdashery and they're there sort of eyeballing these other characters wondering who's who and what's what. I loved all that. Did, you, did that not grab you, Kristen,
1: from the start? Uh, I, I have to say the first 10 minutes of the film I found wonderful. Okay. I did like the first 10 minutes of the film. But then that first 10 minutes... Somehow ends up dragging out for two hours where absolutely nothing happens. (laughs) No, before the intermission. Well, you're right. For the whole three hours, you can pretty much just say nothing happens. But for the first two hours in particular, you get to the haberdashery, and there it's just more staring at each other, saying nothing in particular. So boring. These are like the worst conversations of the worst pot smokers in the dorm that you didn't want to be assigned to. Going Post Civil War pot smokers. Yes, but that's what it felt like to me. It's like that's that horrible party you somehow ended up at where everybody's saying nothing interesting. And somehow Tarantino decided that this was interesting enough for us to have to sit through for two hours before the intermission. And then after the intermission... I don't think the payoff's worth it.
0: Yeah. I'm I'm gonna have to agree with you. I I felt I, I had this thrill as the film opened and that thrill faded gradually and steadily as the film wore on until by the end, I was the opposite of thrilled. I was, I was bored. I was a little um, peeved and irritated. I was so
1: mad. I was so mad. I think,
0: that, I think the problem is, is that this film promises a lot more than it can deliver, one being this widescreen spectacle, which is an interesting idea, but why would you waste 70-millimeter film on a movie that takes place entirely within a cabin? It takes place literally within a single room. Uh, That just seemed like a waste of of screen space in a a way to me. And um, even though you've got this great cast, they're not playing characters that you're necessarily invested in or that you care about the way that they were in, say, Reservoir Dogs, which also Mm -hmm. took place in one room. Um, It seems very similar to me in that that respect. But the characters are all just kind of – they all feel like chess pieces that Tarantino is kind of moving around in his head and then this one will kill that one and that one will kill this one. And then, oh, my gosh, that one gets killed. I found the violence very glib and cartoony and not very um, impactful. You didn't really feel the violence. It's too jokey and splashy and goofy. And I will say, um, there's without spoiling too much, there's a misogynist streak oh, in this film. Oh, my God.
1: It's horrible. really shocked me. Well, but- you'll see it very early on. I don't think you're spoiling anything, for Even in the first 10 minutes of the film, you can see... How Jennifer Jason Leigh's character is being treated? Yes. And it's very uncomfortable for me as a woman every time she gets punched in the face. It was uncomfortable for she me. She gets punched in the face well. a lot in this movie. Yeah. And every single time she gets punched in the face, I just sunk deeper into my seat. And, and a
0: lot of uh, a lot of um very liberal use also of the N-word, which I think um, worked very well in Django and I think gave, the, gave Django Unchained a, a real kind of a sense of uh, electricity and, and tension, right? Yeah. And uh, it kind of got your hackles up and it made you kind of nervous and jumpy. Doesn't work well here. I feel like Quentin Tarantino is repeating an old trick and using it, um, not irresponsibly, but just using it gratuitously and, with no, and to no effect. Um, so in, in, in the end... I actually thought the Hateful Eight was a pretty bad date and definitely Tarantino's worst film.
1: Oh, not just one of Tarantino's worst films; one of the worst movies I've ever seen. No, possibly, come on. Possibly one of the top five worst movies I've ever seen. Okay, come on. It now. was so so bad. This really, is, this is easily one of the worst dates I've ever been on. Easily, hands wow, hands down, horrible date. Wow.
0: All right, let's move on to Michael Moore's new film, another filmmaker with a a massive following. Uh, His latest is called Where to Invade Next. Uh, Kristen, explain that title to us.
1: So Michael Moore decides early on in the film, in his own satirical way, that it's time for him to invade other nations. And we quickly learn that invasion is not to bomb the countries or shoot up or rape or pillage, but to take their ideas. Oh, it is terrific what you're doing here in Italy. We love your vacation policy. Okay, let's go over here and see what you're doing right. Oh, my God, Scandinavia. You know what? I love the way you forgive people after they shoot your school up and kill everybody. I love how forgiving you are about all that stuff. This is great. So he goes from nation to nation, notably pretty much just Western Europe yep, in tiny little countries, and says, these are all such fantastic ideas. I want to steal all of them. I want to invade, bring those back to America because this is what America needs right now. Here's a clip. My mission? I will invade countries with names I can mostly pronounce. Take the things we need from them and bring it all back home. Because we have problems no army could solve.
0: Now, Kristen, I don't know about you, but I have a lot of mixed feelings about Michael Moore.
1: So many. So, you too? Oh, okay. so many. <laughs> and my mixed I, I will say I loved Roger and Me. Of course. And I liked Sicko quite a bit. Yes. And then I I liked Bowling for Columbine Bowling for quite Columbine a bit. Bowling for Columbine
0: as well, yes. But
1: other than those three movies... <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, okay. Yeah. And
1: even those three movies I have issues with. But I, yeah. I do, for yeah. the most part, like those three movies.
0: Yeah. Um, well, uh, you know, I found this film uh, to be really interesting because on the one hand, you have Michael Moore uh, doing his doing his his patented Michael Moore persona where he plays the kind of slovenly dumb old American who we all know is not really as dumb as he seems, but he likes to present that that image of himself as just another, you know, big old roly-poly Midwesterner uh, with my, you know, dumb old lack of education. And that I find kind of um, – I find that a little grating and a little disingenuous that persona that he has, and for some reason, especially in this film, whenever he's around a European, he falls into that. I would call it like you know how there was blackface. This is like yeah. a, this is like America face. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like I'm going to kind of shuck and jive as the as the dopey American guy. That bugs me. A as an American, and B just because it seems like a very easy tired stereotype. Um, that irritated me. However. I think just as a research project, this film is pretty unimpeachable. I mean, he's just going around to other countries, finding out what socioeconomic policies have worked for them and why and how. And I think that's all pretty fascinating. Um, I
1: completely disagree with you on that. Really? I am shocked that you have anything good to say about this movie at all. All. No kidding. At oh, Christian, lay it on me. He just cherry picks whatever thing he wants to out of. It's like, you know what France does so well? Great school lunches. Yeah. And you know what France also doesn't do that he completely ignores? Everything having to do with race. With, yeah. well, yes. Mean, just yes. Like what he's cherry picking is he's leaving out all of the other context that makes this one thing possible. We are a nationalistic country that only believes in this kind of thing, and because of that, we can make this kind of food because it's so part of our culture. But they're leaving out how that hurts the rest of the culture, including race relations in their own country. Uh, and they do that over and over and over again. OK.
0: I don't, I don't feel like Michael Moore has to go into every country and say – I'm only going to look at the one country that works well on every single level because only that makes their ideas valid. We, every country is going to have problems. Not everything is going to work perfectly. And I don't see necessarily why race relations is, is related to healthy school lunches. I mean, these two things don't necessarily seem related to me. Um, the, the only one I could think of that might kind of touch on that is Finland, which is um, – like one, of the, like one of Europe's leaders in education year after year, where they have a super short school day and no homework, and yet they excel in education. Finland is also – has like an, or at least used to have an extraordinarily high suicide rate. Mm-hmm. And so it makes you wonder like when you, when you think of some of these countries which have socialist policies, you do wonder where those policies encroach in other, in other aspects of their culture and the way they function. But I don't think that to go into, say, uh, again, just Finland and say, oh, you know, look, you've got this great uh, education system doesn't mean, oh, yeah, but there are other parts of your country that are screwed up. So therefore, we can't copy your education system. Therefore, that undermines the the functioning of your education system. I I I think it's okay for him to cherry pick that way.
1: I can see what you're saying. But I also think that one of the problems of this film is when you're choosing tiny little countries like these – it's also much easier to govern in the ways that these countries govern. When they're small, yes. And yeah, he, it's and like he does well, anytime, not, anytime right. someone's like, oh, we should just be like Vermont. America should copy. No, America cannot copy Vermont. <laughs> there are like 18 people who live in Vermont. Exactly. We cannot copy. And I feel the same way about a lot of these other countries. Yes. When you're dealing with such a small population, I just don't think this is small realistic. Small and
0: homogenous.
1: And homogenous. Right, which is
0: also very important to note. Yes. Very important so to note. Yes. But so
1: homogenous. Yes. But I still- I still. a lot of problems with this. Plus, it's so ranty- Plus, it's so elitist. Even though he's playing the schmucky white American guy, he's also doing that thing that a lot of liberal America loves to do. Oh, Europe does it so well. well I if, just love Europe. And that's it's why— so, it, It's right. so French. Like, when you use the words, it's so French, as a compliment, I want to punch you. Right. <laughs> right. And, I, and that is why
0: I feel like, in some ways, Michael Moore's—that uh, that persona, I think, has helped undermine him— to the conservatives. I think the conservatives see that attitude and that that sort of rhetoric that Michael Moore uses and therefore it, it and it, it it negates for them the actual validity of what he's saying like why you know why why shouldn't we have why shouldn't we treat our workers better? Why shouldn't we have better vacation policies? Why shouldn't we have healthier school lunches? Why shouldn't we have a better uh, you know a better education system? Why you know he goes to a Slovenia where they have uh, free universities. Where Americans are going because it's free, and he's saying, "Why should we not have a free university system where people can go?" And I don't feel like just because he's he's playing the dumb old America role to 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 impress the Europeans, we should negate all those policies. I, I thought it was I thought it was a I wouldn't say it was a great film, but I thought it was very thought provoking, and I was. I was happy it's coming out now because it's a movie about domestic issues at a time when the presidential election campaign is focused entirely on xenophobia. And, and sort of outwardly directed fear and loathing of the other. And I kind of feel like maybe this film could help bring us back to the stuff that actually matters, the problems here within our own country. Do
1: you know what I'm saying? Absolutely not. None of those people you're talking about who xenophobia is a major issue with are even going to watch this movie.
0: Well, okay? I mean, th- I mean they, they that's... They don't care. And, then, and that, is, that is a problem. I, I know what you're saying, it, but I mean, how else do you do that? Do you just present this dry documentary about domestic policy and, uh, you know... It's so not bad. Ha-
1: it's irritating. And then also it felt like a sloppy blog entry written for BuzzFeed by somebody who's a college intern. Wow, this was not a good date for me. This was wow. one of the more irritating documentaries I've seen, not just from Michael Moore, but just period.
0: I thought it was—I thought it was a thought-provoking, imperfect uh, Michael Moore-ish movie that had, I think, a lot of really good ideas. I'm surprised to hear I'm you say so that. So shocked Kristen.
1: you liked anything about this.
0: All right. Well, that brings us to our very last film, which we did not see because Warner Brothers would not show it to us.
1: They said that due to unforeseen circumstances. <laughs> what? What kind of unforeseen circumstances mean that we cannot see Point Break? Point Break. The remake of Point Break. Yes. This does not have Keanu Reeves. And... Nope. Nope. No. He's not in this one. Uh, the late, great Patrick Swayze, obviously not in this obviously one. Obviously
0: not. Um Instead, we've got Edgar Ramirez, who's in Joy, and very good in Joy, and uh, Luke Bracey in the main roles. And the director, Erickson Core, a guy that I don't think uh, anyone has heard of. Not that that's a bad thing, um, you know. The original Point Break, an absolute classic, directed by Catherine Bigelow. The Unstoppable. Absolute perfection. Absolute perfection. Um, I think, as you might remember, it was about surfing bank robbers. And the shtick with this new Point Break seems to be that instead of having it be just about surfing, it'll be just about extreme sports in general. Here's a clip.
1: I don't know why they're committing the crime, sir, but I have an idea what they're chasing. I think they're attempting something called the Ozaki 8. This is Ono Ozaki. He was an eco-warrior. He challenged the extreme sports world to a series of eight ordeals that he said honored the forces of nature. An an extreme athlete could potentially train their entire life just to attempt one of these ordeals. To complete all eight would be to complete the impossible. So, Rayford, did you... Managed to see this movie some other nefarious way. I mean, I still haven't b- been able to find any other way to see this movie. Listen,
0: I can't, I, I don't want to say anything because I have not seen this film. Um, we have recorded this podcast a little early, and so um, the film doesn't open until after you'll be hearing this podcast. So we have not been able to see it. Um, but I just, I have to say, uh, the idea that unforeseen circumstances <laughs> stepped in because you couldn't foresee that it was a bad movie. What? <laughs> I mean, again, I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. I should keep an open mind. But at any rate, we just want to apologize to everyone for not having seen the remake of Point Break we this Christmas. We did our darndest. We, we did sure our did.
1: Darndest. Oh, oh God! All right. Well, it's time to wrap things up here with a little bit of trivia. Trivia, as we always have. And last week we had some Star Wars trivia. That's right.
0: Last week we reviewed the new Star Wars, The Force Awakens, and we went back to the original. We played you a clip of a TIE fighter, uh, a famous, uh, famous f- spacecraft in Star Wars. Uh, we played you this clip. Yeah! We asked you to name the animal that, is, that you can hear in that TIE fighter roar. It's a combination of a couple sounds, one of them being an animal, and we got the right
1: answer. Kristen? Dan Martinez, our longtime listener, wrote on our Facebook page, facebook.com movie date podcast, attached as my entry in audio file form for reasons I hope will be obvious.
0: Hey, Kristen and Rafer. This is Dan with the answer to last week's trivia question. The animal you hear when a TIE fighter flies by is an elephant. The human behind that is one of my personal idols, Ben Burt, who's responsible for most of the sound effects I grew up with. When he wasn't busy creating the shot of a blaster, the crack of Indiana Jones's whip, or the voices of R2 and E.T., he was making an audio easter egg out of the Wilhelm scream. You know. Ah! But my favorite is the combination of an old film projector's whir with the TV tube's buzz to create the hum of an elegant weapon for a more civilized age. Thanks, guys. Love the show.
1: Holy crap. Dan Martinez. Nice. Wow. That that was above and beyond the call of duty. Oh. Do you
0: work here in this building?
1: Oh my gosh. that you, level of audio editing and oh my god! very
0: nice very nicely done yes that uh, the TIE fighter is a combination of an elephant recorded from another film an old film slowed down an elephant stampede and also uh, as you said Dan uh, Ben Burt, the great sound effects designer who recorded um, passing traffic through a metal tube outside his motel room I think uh, I don't know where he was in what city or state but that's what he did he combined those two sounds and got the TIE fighter so
1: thank you to Dan Martinez wow Dan that's fantastic. All right. This week we have a totally different trivia question, something that has to do with a horrible, harrowing, difficult film shoot. This is an honor of the Revenant, which as we were saying earlier was over 8 months of pure hell, yes. with people getting injured and dropping out and getting fired and freezing to death and ending up having to get medical care. It was a very, very difficult shoot. But another film that is very famous for being a very arduous shoot is, well, I shouldn't say anything more about it, but I will play this clip. Well, 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 house guests, eh? <laughs> and who might you be? No, 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 now, don't tell me. <laughs> Let's see,
0: you're, uh, you're traveling in disguise. No, that's not right. I've, uh, you're, uh, you're going on a visit. No, I'm wrong. That's uh, right away. You're, uh, you're running away. How did you guess? Professor Marvel never guesses. He knows. (laughs) That film was uh, pretty difficult, more difficult than you might know. Uh, One of the main stars was hospitalized uh, due to a reaction to his makeup. He wound up in an iron lung. And uh, another was burned, second-degree burns. Uh, Very, very difficult shoot. You wouldn't know it from watching the film now, but if you know what movie that is, give us a call, 5717movies.
1: Or you can always write to us at facebook.com slash podcast.